Uh, the first Bible reading comes from Galatians chapter 5, starting from verse 16, which is found on page 826. And we're reading till chapter 6, verse 5. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified this sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to someone else, for each one should carry his own load. And the second reading comes from Matthew chapter 7, uh, from verse 7 which can be found on page 685. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. We pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would be opening our minds and that you would be changing our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount is a truly nasty piece of literature. Although I suspect that that's, they're not, that's not the adjective that we would normally use to describe it. Uh, words such as uh, comforting and inspiring... Uh, we might tend to use more uh, to describe the Sermon on the Mount. And that's understandable, isn't it? Because every day we are buffeted by the ungodliness of our world. And so the contrasting message of Jesus uh, nourishes and comforts our souls. Yet 
this truth, which so comforts, also uh, exposes us. Uh, the, it exposes the religious games which we play in order to impress one another. Uh, it exposes the ambitions that we have which are no different to those who live just for this life. Uh, it exposes the, uh, our judgmentalism, the judgments we make of others uh, so that we can make ourselves look good when we in fact have a log in our own eye. And so it is like that uh, moth, the idea of the moth that's attracted to the heat of the flame. But uh, the closer you get, the more burnt you get from it. The Sermon on the Mount, uh, it exposes our weakness, doesn't it? It exposes our guilt. Uh, one dear Christian friend lamented to me, saying, Scott, I love the Sermon on the Mount. It's really wonderful and I just can't live up to it. <laughs> Ever feel like that? that? When we search our own hearts, we know that our love for God is often not matched by our obedience to him. And it's a sentiment which can, on the one hand, it can lead us to hopelessness uh, or, uh, as we see in this passage today, it can lead us to prayerfulness. Because in today's passage, Jesus makes uh, a very big promise to us. And I want us to look at that, if you care to open up your Bibles at Matthew 7. Let me read to you from verse 7 to 8. Uh, very familiar verses. We sing songs about these verses where Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who seeks receives, he who seeks, everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. Very familiar passage, isn't it? And we love it. It's a great couple of verses and we, uh, we usually get it wrong when we try to understand them because we take these verses out of context. It's a clear promise that what we ask God for he will give us. Um, we will receive it. We will find it. It will be opened up for us. Question though is what is the it? What is the thing which would, we should be asking, seeking and knocking for? Now we know that Jesus is not writing a blank cheque. It's not as if as some say, you know the old, um, they say if you name it then you can claim it. <laughs> Because God has promised it to you. Uh, we know that it's not like that because uh, of our experience, because of the character of God and because of common sense. Think about our experience. There are so many things which we pray for, we ask God for and we don't get what we want. And the time elapses when, by which we would have liked to have gotten what we got. So we know we're not going to get it. Uh, our experience tells us that this is not a blank cheque. We know it also because of the character of God. God. God's not like a genie in a bottle. You just sort of rub the bottle and the genie pops out and, you know, you get your three wishes. And God's not like that. God, God, is, God is God. We don't control God. Uh, we, we obey God. We serve him. And we know also because of common sense. 
One farmer prays for rain for his crop. His next door neighbour's praying for a bright sunny day. Don't know why I'd pray for that, but you get the idea, don't you? You know, two godly Christians both praying the opposite things. God's not going to give them both what they want. You get the idea. So our experience, our character and our common sense tells us that this is not a blank check. However, there are some things which we can pray for in full confidence that God's answer to us will be a resounding yes. Um, For example, uh, listen to James chapter 1 verse 5. You don't have to look it up, just I'll read it for you. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. That's a pretty clear promise, isn't it? You feel that you're not wise enough, you want more of God's wisdom, you ask God, God's going to give it to you. And we ask with sincerity. Because that's part of God's plan, it's part of God's will. Why did, Jesus, why did God send Jesus? Well, ultimately, he sent Jesus so as to create for himself, as Paul says in Titus chapter 2, to create for himself a, a, a people who are his very own, who are eager to do that which is good. Forgiven people. People who, who are wise uh, in God's way. People who live lives which are kingdom-shaped. And so that involves the wisdom of God. So you want wisdom? Ask for wisdom with all your heart, you know, sincerely, and the answer is going to be yes. And it's kind of what the Sermon on the Mount has been all about. That there are certain things which we can pray for, which we know are the will of God. So that When we pray that God would purge our lives of religious hypocrisy, you know, like praying to be seen by others, giving so that others be impressed and so on, or when we pray that that we would not value this world more than we value the next, or when we pray that we would not judge other people, do you know the one thing which we don't have to pray? We don't have to pray saying, if it be your will. Because we know it's God's will, don't we? I'm not going to, say to pray to God and say, dear God, you know, please make me less materialistic, if it be your will. <laughs> I don't need to pray for that, because I know it's his will. And, and so, Jesus has told us uh, these things in the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, that are actually God's will for us. Now, there are are a few important things that I pray for uh, nearly every day of my life. Uh, Things which I deeply desire, things which I know are good, but I know that they may or may not be God's will. But I still keep on asking. But I do so knowing that well, God is actually much wiser than me. And so either explicitly or implicitly in my prayers, uh, it is God's will that I want, not my own will. But he's our heavenly father and so we should actually talk to him and express the things which we desire. 
However, when it comes to a character which is shaped by God's kingdom, we know that we can pray with confidence. Uh, Not only knowing that it is God's will, but also knowing that God is willing to do that for us. And Jesus assures us of this in our text today. Have a look at verse 9. I'll read that for you. He says, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, here he's talking to parents and uh, asking questions uh, about uh, parents and giving gifts to their children, their son, and they're rhetorical questions, aren't they? Because it kind of invites the answer, no, no, that you wouldn't actually do that. Um, If your son asks you for some bread, you're not going to dish him up a stone that looks like a bun and sit back and watch him crunch his teeth on them. <laughs> Something that's actually going to do him physical harm. No, no normal parent pay, plays tricks on their kids like that in order to cause them physical harm or even spiritual harm. The, the old snake and the, the fish and the snake trick that Jesus talks about here it may not involve actually, you know, the son says, hey, Dad, can I have a fish? And you say, here you go, son, here's a fish, and you hand him a live brown snake. Um, it may not actually be that. It may actually be uh, to do with um, spiritual uncleanness, ceremonially unclean food. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 11, any creature that moves on its belly across the ground, was considered to be unclean. And so a loving mother or father is not going to serve up snake meat in the soup and say, here, enjoy your fish soup. You wouldn't do that. Um, Why would you want to? Uh, When you would make your child ceremonially unclean. Mind you, I think that Um, the interpretation of just handing over the live brown snake or the live cobra also makes pretty much the same point that Jesus is making. You don't do it, not if you're decent. Although there are some fathers and mothers who are evil, even by our human standards of decency. But notice here that Jesus calls... Uh, all parents evil, not just the parents who abandon their children or who do terrible things. This is about human parents in general. Uh, and he says, if, the, if you, though, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your... That's a bit jarring, isn't it, to talk to us and say that we're evil. It is jarring. But the issue here is the doctrine of sin. The very reason that the Sermon on the Mount is uncomfortable for us is because of sin, because of our fallen human natures. 
Uh, if I compare myself with a father who harms his child, who abandons his kid or does all sorts of terrible things, then I don't look very evil, do I? At least not in my own eyes. I look like I'm pretty good. But if I compare myself to the righteousness of God, well, then that's another story, isn't it? That's another story entirely. But even as a sinful human being, I won't intentionally harm my son or my daughter, not physically, not spiritually. And in fact, we tend to do the opposite, don't we? One of the things that, one of the ways in which I benefit from conducting funerals for people is that I get to talk to the family beforehand as we're preparing. And I, I talk to the sons and the daughters and I say, you know, what is it that you love most about your mum or your dad who's passed away? And I could almost write the script, you know, because they say, well, mum or dad, she was just great. He did everything for us kids. There was nothing that she wouldn't do for us. You know, he just worked and worked and did everything to provide for us. Nothing was too much trouble. What Jesus is saying here is that if we weak, sinful humans do good for our kids, then how much more will our Heavenly Father give the good gift to those children of his who ask him? That's the point Jesus is making. But how can we be sure of that? Sometimes I think we might be tempted to think that it'd be easier for us to believe what Jesus is saying if, if we were there at the time. If we were there on the mountain or at the foot of the mountain and Jesus was there and Jesus, we were listening to Jesus, then uh, that would be much easier for us to believe. But actually, you and I are in a far better position than they were because we live this side of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, we know of just how great God's love for us is. We know of the incredible sacrifice that God in Jesus has made for us on the cross. Um, listen to how the Apostle Paul describes our situation uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. How many spiritual blessings have we received in Christ? Every spiritual. What, what are we missing out on? Nothing, because we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then in Ephesians 1, Paul expounds that he spells out what those blessings are that we have been predestined that we have been chosen that God has adopted us redeemed us forgiven us and all through the blood of his son I mean how generous how amazing is that the good gift of being able to call the God of the universe our Father, both now and eternally. But friends, uh, my, my friend's question remains. <clears throat> he says, I love the Sermon on the Mount. It's wonderful, but I just can't live up to it. 
Let's explore this for a moment or two. Will you come with me back to Matthew 5, verse 17? So we're going back to close to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just shared the Beatitudes and talked about us being salt and light in the world. And then in chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. We know how he has done that. He's done that by being the perfect man, our perfect representative, the one who always obeyed God the Father, the one who was an unblemished sacrifice, who became our perfect substitute on the cross, uh, the one who, as Paul says in 2, 2 Corinthians, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And so Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law by being perfect himself and the perfect substitute, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And then from chapter 5 through the material which we've covered, till we get to chapter 7, Jesus then challenges our character. He spells out what the people of God will be like and he rounds it all off with this statement about the law. If you go back to chapter 7, verse 12, 7, verse 12, where he says, So in everything do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And this is like a, a unit of thought in the sermon, starting with the law and the prophets, finishing with the law and prophets, uh, like two bookends on a bookshelf, uh, including the material that he has spoken between these two statements. Well, what are the law and the prophets about? We know... Uh, from reading the Old Testament. There's a long list of do's and don'ts. What Jesus is saying here is that in, in God's kingdom, amongst his redeemed people, that the law and the prophets, it's not about a long list of do's and don'ts to be ticked off in order to regulate your lives because there is no such thing as a complete list of life situations. Think about your own life, the trials, the temptations, the decisions, the times when humility and love for God need to come to, fore, to the fore in the way that you behave. Situations where you need to treat another person with the same kindness, patience, forgiveness and love by which God in Christ has treated you and there's no index in your Bible. Uh, you can't even Google it. Uh, you can't go to any, there's not this long list in your Bible that you can look up which cover every life situation or every ethical situation that you find yourself in. But to love God with all your heart and to ask the 
the proper question of how would I like others to treat me and then do the same for them, Jesus says that this actually sums up the law and the prophets. These are the gospel principles which we need to then express in a myriad of life circumstances. And yet our fallen nature always wants to put ourselves first, others second and God last. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel in passages like Ezekiel 31, Ezekiel 36, uh, spoke of a time which for him was, was in the future. A time when God's law would not be written on tablets of stone, but would be written on hearts of flesh. A time when God would put a new heart and a new spirit uh, to dwell within his people. And I wonder if you might turn with me to Luke's Gospel, to uh, Luke chapter 11. I'm going to read to you a, a section of Jesus' preaching here and ask you to think about comparisons with Matthew 7. Take a look at uh, Luke 11, starting at verse 9. Everyone got that? Luke 11, verse 9. Jesus says, So I say to you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Sounding familiar? It seems like the same material that Jesus preached on another occasion. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Uh, here's a difference. Or, if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Imagine that. Apparently in, in uh, the Middle East they had these really, really large scorpions where when they kind of curl up into a, into a ball, they look like eggs. Imagine someone saying, well, here's an egg, and it opens up and it turns out to be a scorpion. You wouldn't do it, would you? No. Jesus goes on. Uh, or, if, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who seek him? Do you see the point? So the question is, what is the, this thing which we ask for? What is this thing which we, uh, which we seek after? What is this thing which we knock for? What is this... What is, what is the answer to our prayers? And the answer is that God will grant us his gift, the Holy Spirit. That is what Jesus has promised. For it is he, the Spirit of God, who reshapes our lives, our loves, our very character. It was good listening to that passage from Galatians 5 earlier, wasn't it? Where... Paul speaks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit and he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control and guess what? Against these things there is no law. You 
live like this and you're actually obeying the law of God. It's, it's Sermon on the Mount stuff. It's Beatitudes kind of stuff. In fact, uh, Paul goes on in Galatians uh, 6 to, to say how, how it is that with humility and gentleness that we should restore a brother who is, who is caught in sin. And it's just like the clear out the log in your own eye so you can remove the speck in your brother's eye that we looked at last week in Matthew 7. The spirit-filled person is not the person who plays religious games so as to be seen by men or who thinks that they haven't murdered because they've only hated or is so worldly that they do not trust in the provision of their heavenly father. The stuff Jesus has been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. But you know what? The fact that we need to ask for God's spirit to change us, that's actually an acknowledgement that by ourselves we cannot. By ourselves we can't do it. Which means that the Sermon on the Mount uh, ought not to lead us to hopelessness, but rather lead us to prayerfulness. Although I suspect that sometimes our problem is actually carelessness. See, it's so possible, isn't it? You know from your own experience that you can start off well in the Christian life with with a lot of zeal, and a lot of desire to change, but over a period of time you kind of just plateau off and you become a bit used to who you are and the areas in your life that you know that don't please God, well, we can be tempted to say, well, you know, it's just how I am. <laughs> That's who I am as a person. We kind of give up the fight. We give up the struggle. We don't, we're not as zealous for for God's righteousness in our lives as we need to be. Throughout history, uh, religious people have tried all sorts of weird and wonderful techniques to make themselves more, more godly, to change their, their character. Um, like, for example, sleeping on beds of nails or wearing clothes that are so prickly that they intentionally irritate your skin. It's not likely to make me feel holy, I can tell you that much, or behave in a godly manner. Or there was a, <clears throat> or people like, there was a guy called Simon the Stylite who for 30 years lived on top of a pole um, in order to make himself, when what we need to be doing is asking, seeking, knocking. We need to be praying we need to be praying for what we need is that God by his spirit would be at work in our lives do you want to be more godly the place to start is on your knees it's time alone with God in deep personal prayer talking with God you and him talking with God about, about your issues which you know are just not right, that need to get sorted out in your life. 
Perhaps some of the issues which Jesus has talked about in the Sermon on the Mount have made you feel exposed. Pride. Judgmentalism. Grudges. Lustfulness or whatever it is for you. We need to be asking. We need to be seeking. We need to be knocking. And to do so, not just as a one-off event, not just to pray for these things once or twice or for a few days or a couple of weeks, but rather as a pattern of life. For this uh, asking, seeking and knocking is continuous. That's actually true grammatically in the text, in the original. It's a continual process, not just a one-off thing but it is to be continually in our lives as a lifelong expression of our dependence upon God so that over the months, the years or even the decades of our lives that the, the character of God's kingdom will be infused in us, that it, it will become the, the salt and the light that God desires us to be as we seek to uh, uh, share his gospel and his love with uh, others in our world. So let's pray about these things now, shall we? Father, we want to thank you so much uh, for the uh, challenging teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And we do pray for each one of us that we would be men and women of prayer, Father, that uh, you would reveal to us those areas in our life that need to change and that uh, by perseverance and by the power of your Holy Spirit that uh, over time that we would see changes, that we would be the people you would have us be. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.